So welcome back again to the second part of Common Sea Inspirations. My name is John Keeley. Thanks again for staying with us this morning. And by way of introduction to our guest today, I want to quote a statement made at the Knox Shrine in September the 1st, 2019, last year. Bishop Francis Duffy led the annual Ardour and Clonmacnois Diastan pilgrimage to Knox Shrine. This is on the 1st of of September 2019. This is a very special occasion as it marked the 30th anniversary of the healing of Marion Carroll at Knox Shrine while, the same pilgrimage from, while on the same pilgrimage from her home in Athlone. During his homily, Bishop Duffy recalled that September day in, two, in, in 1989. I recognise that Marion was healed from her long-standing illness while on pilgrimage in this sacred space, in this sacred place. Marion's healing is good news for her, for her, her husband Jimmy, for her family and friends. Marion's healing is life-changing. Many have attested to the dramatic change that came about in Marion here and on her return to, to Athlone in 1989. Without doubt, there was a healing, a cure of illness that beset Marion for several years. Marion was liberated from sickness and its impact on her and her family. It's also a healing for which there is no medical explanation at present. It's definitely, and yet defies medical attention, medical explanation. So at this point, it, 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 it's, a, it's a pleasure for me, and a grace for us all, to welcome onto the programme this morning, Marion Carroll. Good morning, Marion. How are you? Good morning, John. I'm great, thank you. Thanks a lot for joining me this morning, uh, and certainly after that introduction there, and, and a statement by Bishop Duffy, we're, we're all eager as to listen to your story. But maybe to start off with... Marion, maybe you can share with us the nature of your illness that you suffered up to 1989, please. Of course, John. Um, I got married on the 5th of June, 1972. And uh, in December that year, I became pregnant with our first child. And things started to happen, but I just thought it could have been the pregnancy. You know, I didn't fully understand. And then I spent a lot of time in hospital and... Um, uh, ended up with a cesarean section. And after that, more things started happening. My legs and my hands. And uh, I was pushed around by a lot by doctors. It got to the stage I just didn't trust them. But it was through having constant kidney infections that eventually I was sent to the urologist in Dublin. And he sent me to another doctor. And that's when Jimmy was sent to my husband, sent to my husband and told him, at that time, you see, there was no MRI or um, really a lot to, to diagnose MS. It was only as it progressed. And he told my husband that I had the MS, that it could remain mine, it could end up in a wheelchair or eventually bedridden. Now, he never told me, but he told my husband, and I didn't know what it was, but Jimmy had it written down on a piece of paper. And I'd seen it. And uh, I said, is that what I have? Well, he said, Yes, that's what they said. Well, I thought it was just something. I remember buying a flag for it that time. used to sell flags instead of the badges. The way it's on. And I thought it was going to be something I'd get over. And at that time, I had lost the power on one side. And I know at that time I was deaf in the right ear. I couldn't 
do a lot for, for a few days because I had, had a bad kidney infection. But eventually I came home. And, of course, when I came home, I had to have a nurse at home help. And we carried on as best as we could. And uh, then I had our daughter in 76, and things got a lot worse after that. And it ended up eventually that um, I had no power in both of my legs, no power in my right hand, only limbs in the left. I was completely blind in the right eye and very little sight in the left eye. My speech was badly affected. The muscles in my throat were affected. To eat the food had to be cut up very small or liquid ice. And to drink with a plastic beaker with a lid and a straw, all that had to be given to me. I had to wear a collar to support my neck and head. I had to wear a pattern because I had no control over my bowels. And I had a course of the catheter in. And um, I had bad epilepsy. Now, you don't die from multiple sclerosis. But you can die from the side effects and of the kidney trouble that is really going to kill me. And that was the state I was in when I went to Not Shrine um, in September 89. I was just like a newborn baby in a pram. I had to be washed, fed, changed and moved. John, if you let me lie in one way in the bed at 9 o'clock in the morning, and you didn't come back to nine o'clock that night. I wasn't able to move, not even a little inch, by myself. You were like that for 13 years, Marion. No, I was like that for the last three years. The other years, it is, you know, you get yes. this multiple sclerosis, you get the attacks. And the more attacks you get, the weaker it leaves that part of your body. It's um, what happens in the attack. And my one seat around the nerve strip. But when the attack finishes and the myelin sheet grows back, it scars. And that's why it's called multiple sclerosis because it can happen at different parts of the body at the same time. And the more it scars, that's when the weaker the part of the body gets. When we come to the day in 1989, September 1989, when you went on pilgrimage, to now. Can you lead us through that day, please, Marion? Um, well, I used to go into a, a, a local hospital for respite. And uh, I had a friend, Jerry Blaine. Jerry was in the order of Mort, and he was also an ambulance in that loan, an ambulance in that loan hospital. And one day he said to me in the hospital, Marion, would you like to go to Knox Shrine for a day? And I just said, Jerry, I'm going to get away from the four walls. But John, to be honest, I had no intention of going. I'd been twice and I wasn't impressed. But it was the 3rd of September, the Austin pilgrimage. And um, I really didn't want to go. I knew I was dying. I didn't want to leave my family. But I really didn't know how to say no. But the Friday before I went to Knox Shrine, my kidneys got a lot worse when my doctor came out. And he told me I had to go to hospital as soon as possible. But I told him about Jerry and Knox Shrine. He said, look, i let you go to Knox Shrine on Sunday, but be ready for hospital on Monday. But, John, that Saturday, I'd come to a crossroads in my life. I knew I couldn't go forward, I couldn't go backwards, I couldn't go sideways. I knew I was going to die. And I had been praying, asking Jesus and Mary to let me live long enough to see Cora and Anthony out of their teenage years, that really they're the hard years of a children's life. And I knew I was not going to see this. And I did not want to go to Knox Shrine. I just wanted to stay and be with my family. 
But as I said, I didn't know how to get out of going. That Sunday morning, Jimmy got me ready. Jerry came out with the ambulance and distracted me into the stretcher. When we got to Knox Shrine, they brought the stretcher into St. John's, the resting care for the sick. They brought me into the nurse, and of course she'd done all the things to do for a person in my position. Eventually they brought me over to the Silicon Knox, and they put me right in the centre, right under the statue of Our Lady of Knox that they used in the procession. And I realised something. This is where I wanted to be. Now, I've always had my own altar at home, but for two months before I went to Knox Shrine, I wanted so much to go in. The altar of Our Lady in my own parish church. What difference it would have been, I wouldn't know. But I think it was the fact, John, because before I stopped walk with my illness, and if I was worried, I used to go into Our Lady's altar, light a candle. If I time, I'd put my rosary. I might just say, Mother, I need you. And I always felt her two arms coming around me. And I knew then I could cope with what has happened in my life. Now, John, I needed this so much. About two months before I went to Knox Shrine, one day Jimmy put me into a special reclining wheelchair, which is heavy enough in itself, and he wheeled me in the whole way to St. Mary's Church here in Athlone. But when we got in, I couldn't get into Our Lady. I wasn't accessible to wheelchairs. So here I was, right under her altar in Knox, statue to use the procession. And I looked up at that statue, and I saw it was the most beautiful, most friendliest statue that I ever seen in my life. I felt she was just there to greet me and no one else. And I've been thinking a lot about Diane, about Jimmy, Cora, and Anthony. I know how much Jimmy loved Cora and Anthony, and I knew they'd never need for anything in their lives, especially love. But I worried about Jimmy. Jimmy built his whole life around me. And Jimmy and I are one mother's best friend as well as husband and wife. And I was worried that when I was buried and the funeral was over, and Jimmy went back to our home because he was so quiet and been a man that people think he didn't want anybody or need anybody. And that no one reached out to Jimmy in his loneliness. Now, I know how I feel that Jimmy's the one to die in me. Because if Jimmy died in me, to be half of me gone. And when there's half of something gone, it's very hard to make it a whole. Those were the thoughts and feelings going around in my heart and my mind. But all of a sudden, John, I wanted someone to talk to. A wife and a mother that would understand this pain within. And I looked back up at the statue and I said to her lady, You're a mother too. You know how I feel. It wasn't a prayer. It was just from one woman to another. When this army ceremony started, my bishop, Bishop Colm O'Reilly, he anointed for the anointment of the sick. And after I was anointed, I got restless. But when it came to the consecration of mass, it's very hard to explain this feeling. I wasn't afraid, but all of a sudden I wanted someone I knew. And Sister Antonio was a Eucharistic minister in our parish, and she brought me Holy Communion every Sunday of my illness. And I knew she was there in Knox Shrine that day. So I got one of the stewards that knew it if he could find her. When he could not find her, I was glad that I did not know what I wanted of her. But I received Holy Communion from my bishop. And after I received Holy Communion, I got very bad pain in both of my heels, which is very unusual. I was due to get all my drugs, but because of the beaker, the lid and the straw, I decided to wait. I was home three days from Knox Shrine. And I got a little time to myself in the excitement in our home. And I look back in that Sunday and I realized something. 
I received Holy Communion normal, something I hadn't been able to do in a long, long time. Up to that day, all I could receive was a tiny little piece of the host and a lot to drink. That day, I received the full host with nothing to drink. Also, that pain became in my heel. That pain went, and when that pain went, every pain in my body went with it. It was actually, John, when my bishop came down with the Blessed Eucharist and the Monstrance for the blessing of the sick. And he came in front of the stretcher, and he held it up and he blessed me. It was at that time that I got this beautiful feeling, a magnificent feeling, and like a whispery breeze telling me that if the stretcher was open, that I could get up and walk. Now, I'm very down to earth and practical. I thought it would more sense in getting ideas like this. I thought I'd go home and tell Jimmy. Jimmy always sorted everything out in my life. No matter what happened, he put my, his arms around me and made my world right. So I thought I'd tell Jimmy. But when they brought the stretcher back over to St. John's, the doctor was at the pilgrimage that day. His wife came over talking. We were talking for a little while, and I had no control over what happened next. I said to her, would you think I was stupid that if the stretcher was open, that I could get up and walk? And she said, no, but I knew by her face she didn't know what to say. She knew me all my life and knew the condition I was in. So she actually called one of the nurses that nursed me in that lone hospital, Maureen Rafferty. And Maureen Rafferty opened the stretcher. But she came to our home the next day, and she told me she only opened it to pacify me. But when she opened the stretcher, my two legs swung out and I stood up straight. I wasn't even a bit stiff after all them years. Did Sister Antonio noticed? I was holding my head myself without the collar. I was using my arms and hands, and that my speech was perfect. But when I stood up and knocked, it had nothing to do with walking or moving. Right in front of me, I seen my own heart. It was so full of joy and peace, and a love there is no end to. And it was so shiny, it was like looking directly into the sun. And the rays of that came towards me. It had all them gifts of the joy, that peace, and that great love. This is due to the kind who found the society of Knock and the handmaids and stewards. I'd never met her before. And she came over to me and said, Can you read? And I said, No. I haven't been able to see right in a long time. I said, Never mind, she said. Someone will read this to you. And she handed me a book. It was the yearly annual of Knock Shrine. But whatever I was fiddling at it, the page opened. And I looked down at the page open. The page read, Why? Is the rosary so powerful? And I could be drawn to small print. And I said to her, that's our prayer. That's the prayer of our home and our family. So they were all getting a bit excited. And I got around Jerry Glynn to bring me home. I sat up straight the whole way home in the ambulance. I wouldn't even lean back and relax. And coming down near our drive in that lone town, I said to Anne Flanagan, the nurse with the order of Malta, I said, Anne, put on the collar. We'll say nothing to Jimmy. We'll surprise him. But John, I forgot I was sitting, not lying in the stretcher. I could not sit on my own for years. Even in the wheelchair I had to be strapped in. But Anne put on the collar and Jerry backed back into the drive. And Jerry got out to open the back of the ambulance. And with that, Jimmy came out the front door. And I heard him saying to Jerry, I suppose I better get the wheelchair. And Jerry said, well, I suppose you're better. In a voice that wasn't too sure what was happening. I was walking down the steps of the ambulance. Anne was one side and Jerry was the other. And Jimmy came out the front door of the wheelchair. And he said, well, Mar, how is not? 
but it was all right then. Why would anybody bother going down there? He didn't realise I was walking. So I don't even think I knew what to do. I got into the wheelchair. And with that, Jerry and Anne went off in the ambulance. John, I'll never forget the next part as long as I did. One went into a home and into the sitting room. And Jimmy sat down over the patio door. And the wheelchair was in the centre of the room. And I stood up and I said, look, Jim, I can walk. Said, oh, God, Mary, said, don't. And I went over and I put my arms around him. I've never seen a man crying like him. And he got down his knees and he started thanking the Lord. Those tears, I didn't understand Jimmy's tears that day. It wasn't a couple of weeks after we sat as a family. And we spoke about the things we don't want to speak about. Fear, uncertainty, and death. And I learned a lot. I learned there were times after Jimmy washed, said, changed, or moved me. And he left our bedroom. He got down his knees and he asked the Lord to take him and to cure me. At the Christmas before I was cured, the tree and plants be the best as we're going to be the last together. How my family suffered, John, yet how rich I am, because all they gave me was abundance of love and the knowledge they wanted. I've never looked back since that day, and now I work in my ministry, and a very important part of that is this bit that I, that, that I go and see them when I can and pray with them, and that's very important as well as the churches and that. Marion, thank you for for recounting that to us. And just, just a few questions that just come to mind. First of all, how how did how, how did all of this affect your own spirituality? You obviously had a lot of faith, even though you have been always, praying for years. But I always loved praying, and I always loved having a, an altar. And um, you know, it it. it I, it wasn't, it wasn't much different in a sense. It strengthened it, of course, a lot. But I was always very, you know, aware of what the Lord could do. You know, I often, you know, I remember one time I was going at a funeral and they were saying, you know, and we believe, I remember the priest saying, we believe that when we die we go to heaven. And I remember thinking, I said, no, I know. You know, that was, I always felt that way. And um, there's a, a funny part, too, because, you know, when I was sick I, and I couldn't see right, and I remember one day there was a cross up over the door of the bedroom, and I couldn't just barely, you know, I could see the shadows of it. And somehow or other, I started thinking about um, the Angelus and turned the Angelus. And I was trying to remember how to pray it. Jimmy used to say, when we prayed the rosary, I could say the first part of Hail Mary a hundred times. Because I would, you know, my brain would be working. And then I started thinking about, you know, the Holy Family and Mary. And um, when she said yes to the angel, it was a magnificent thing to be asked to do. But they would call life a day. You could tell her mother and father that she was pregnant. And I could see her trying to, to, to get out the words. And listen to her mother and father and saying, what are we going to tell Joseph? And I start living with them. While everybody else had Coronation Street and all of them, I was living with the Holy Family. That was my soap opera. Marion, how did all of this affect your own family life, you know, um, relations with your own family now? I mean, obviously this was, this was a tremendously beautiful event to happen within your own life, but how did it affect 
the other members of your family? Well, you know, as we look through the years and you get wiser and look back, you know, even um, when I was writing my book, from the time I was born in my mother's womb, my whole life has been preparation for what I'm doing now in my ministry. And those 17 years of my illness hurt my whole family. I mean, they don't, they don't know what it's like to watch an illness and, and feel inadequate and... and, and you know, the things that, that, that happen, the financial and the whole lot. But they have great understanding of that. They have. And um, they never mind if I'm, you know, if I have to go or away or, or, or if anybody comes. Before I ask you there about your your work and your the few ministers that you're involved with at the moment... Just going back to the to the cure again, to the miracle again. In your case, uh, this was pronounced as being a miracle 30 years after the event. That's in September last year. What what did this mean to you? You know, did this... Um, well, to be quite honest, I, I had to laugh at some of the media were saying that I campaigned. You know, it wasn't any election. You can't campaign the Lord or anybody if it happened. But it, it, it was, for me... It wasn't so much I wanted for myself. I wanted the fact that it would be recognized the true presence of the living Christ in the Eucharist and the power of the true presence. That was the important part of that for me. You know, and, and that was a big thing for me. It was so important. And also let people know I'm just an ordinary woman a wife and a mother and a grandmother now and I'm nothing special and I've done nothing special and to know that, that you don't have to be um, a certain person or uh, a certain culture or uh, whether you're wealthy or anything that's nothing got to do with the Lord you can reach out any time when it's right I prayed afterwards John Snow you know, my about cures, you know, because I was feeling bad. I would go to people and here was I and they were younger than me and, you know, the parents were asking the persons to cure. And I spent a lot of time in prayer in the Blessed Sacrament. The only reason the Lord doesn't cure a person from a fatal illness or, you know, people that had car accidents and walked away from the worst ones and the simple ones that died. Right? The Lord is the only one that sees the future. And if there's going to be a loss of pain and suffering, not physical, we can get the injection of the tablet for that. It's something we can't cope with in life. What father would leave his child in a place they're going to be unhappy? A father would bring his child home to protect them. To have them there and protect them. And that's the only reason that he, he, he doesn't reach out. I'm sure it wasn't for me. It was for you and the other people. And let you know that he is there. And our lady is there to intercede. But we're so human at times, we actually need to see, touch, and see God's love. My cure is that gift to the people. Not to me. Because it was to myself, I would be constantly home with Jimmy. And just an ordinary woman. You know, it's, it, I, I'm married and have a wonderful family and have children, but it's a lonely life. I have friends, but I'm not 
don't get them to see the world for coffee like other women or things like that because I'm away so much at times. And then, you know, it, 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 you have to look at things. If you do plan to go somewhere and someone is very sick, they come first. Maybe you might just, at this stage, maybe you might just share with us maybe some of the ministers, some of the work that you're involved with at the moment. Well, I am actually, I invited the churches to speak. And I go to the churches and I speak there and um, usually the priest brings down the Blessed Sacrament um, down the aisle and I'll say the intercessory prayer and I'll meet the very sick then. A big part of my ministry when I'm free is it's very important to me if you were sick, John, and you phoned me for a prayer and I was anywhere free, I would come to you. Because Jesus says, I have no ears, no eyes, no voice, no feet but yours. And that's what he would do. He would come if he walked among us, the man. So I do that. I go to school when I can. And um, I really enjoy that because I get hungry with the young people. And But when I go there, I talk about my teenage years and, as well, you know. And Simon um, home in and some of the, the little problems that happen. And I tell them that I, I have taken about confidentiality. That whatever anybody says tells me it doesn't go any further. So I tell them they can phone me any time. And as I do say to them, if you come with your mother or your father to see me and you come in first and your mother or father comes in afterwards and say, well, what does he or she say? I can't tell them, I said. So I tell them that they phone me if, if they have a problem and they need to talk to someone and then um, get my number in Knox Shrine or, or my local parish church and give it to them. And if they haven't got the credit, I'll phone them back if they leave a message. And if I need to meet them, I'll go and meet them. That strikes me there. You went in and you said you speak with young children. How do young children react to your story? Well, it's uh, marvellous, particularly now um, the secondary schools I go to, because um, you'd be surprised. Um, they always want to meet someone like Jimmy, and if I do tell them to, you know, pray. But sometimes life uses a hand that's not great. But never give up because Jesus is always there and is there for us. And um, I will talk to him about different things, you know. But I do enjoy um, about talking about mass, but you cannot go into young people and preach to them, you know. Yeah. In our short interview today, we've covered the main points of your of your of your medical cure. However, there's some listeners uh, can read more detail about a new book that you just put out. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? I think it's entitled My Miracle Cure. Tell us a bit about That's that. right, that's right, and there's some forces in it. You'll see me in my little cute dancing costume. <laughs> but, um, yes, um, John Scally, John is, is a local man. He's actually uh, a lecturer up in Trinity College, and um, John came one time there to interview me for a radio program and he said there's a book in this and that's how the book came about. But I, it's not, I talk about my, my childhood and growing up and, um, you know, thing, different things. And um, also about uh, when I was a child I had TB. And, um, you know, as you said, in the 50s when you got TB, I was sent to Piermont Sanatorium. 
And if you went into payments and it told me very seldom came out with TB at the long, it was usually that you came out in a coffin. But at the time, there was a record out called St. Teresa of the Roses, 78, and my father bought it. And I thought it was a, I loved it. I fell in love with the St. Teresa. And um, I always, you know, I always prayed for and things like that and my little prayers at night. To me, it was always, the Our Father to me was the greatest prayer. God gave it himself. But anyway, um, I was in Mount Sanatorium, and a week before I went, I was saying my childish prayers, and there was a small statue of Our Lady of Lourdes on the dressing table, and it lit up and smiled at me. Mm-hmm. And um, I called my mother and father, and but they thought this is it. I wasn't going to get to Mount. And the priest came, of course, and anointed me whatever at the time. And a few days after that, I was sent to Piedmont Sanatorium. And we weren't allowed having visitors then. And uh, they told my father to come up in, I think it was two or three months, maybe to arrange for, to sign a form to get a lung collapse or something like that. I'm not sure. But when my father came up, they told me to bring bring me home. I was cured. There was no sign of CD. And my father organized the building of a grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes here in Athlone and Thanksgiving. Now, the funny part of that is, after I was cured, I didn't know a lot about St. Therese, just the record was the one as a child. But after I was cured, we ended up in Lizzie, so we did. And that night we went up to the Basilica in Lizzie and they were showing the story of St. Therese's life. And there was a friend behind us that spoke French and he was telling us what they were saying. And it came to the part of St. Therese when she was sick that the statue of her lady came alive and smiled at her and she was cured. And Jimmy just grabbed my hand. And when we came out of the of the silica, the person who was with us said, what went on in there? Something funny went on with the two of you in there. And I said nothing. And, and he said, there is just something. And I said, Jimmy said, well, I'll tell you. He said, when I met Marion, told me about the mistake and how the statue lit up of Our Lady and smiled at her and how she was cured. And I got a shock to discover that that was St. Therese as well. You know, and that's in the book, things like that. The Lord certainly had work for you to do through all your trials and tribulations in your life. So most of that, I'm nearly all of that would be in your book, My Miracle. Actually, one of my best friends read the book. Mm-hmm. And they know me. And they said, Marion, I didn't realize you went through so much. Yes, you you made light of, you know. So, in all good book chapters, they say, My Miracle Cure by Marion Carroll. Maybe I could just finish up the interview with one question that um, maybe there's a few of our listeners would, it might be on their mind. Many of our listeners have and continue to pray for a cure to their own illness whether that be a knock, in the home, in the local church, or whatever, and they're still waiting for that relief. What would you like to say to these people today, Marion? No matter when you pray, or what you offer, it's answered. But you see, we do forget as humans that God is our Father, and no father will give a child a useless gift. It's no use healing the body, if you need, need inner peace, inner healing, 
if you need some brokenness in your life from growing up. The Lord always answers our prayers and, and does heal. But just open up your heart and see what you needed most he did. Because that's what a father gives, what a child needs most. A father is not going to give a child a packet of sweets when it needs a good dinner in its stomach. So the Lord gives what's most important. And that's very important. Now, I've gone to people and that are sick and, and I've prayed with them. And people have been very bad with cancer. Not going to leave. But if you ever meet anybody that's cancer and they're happy in themselves, they have found the healing. They're just waiting for the cure of the body. And the funny, the cure of the body doesn't become important. Because yeah. they have the healing, the inner peace, mm. the acceptance, the understanding and the, the knowledge that God is with them. But that is the healing. And then you're just waiting to be cured about it. But you need to open up your heart and see that. And look every day, every day of my illness, I looked at my blessings, my husband and my children. If someone came to visit me, it was a blessing. You know. And God sends us all these things. He'll always answer. Don't ever think he doesn't answer. I can't guarantee anybody if I pray with them or pray for them that they'll win the lotto. But I can guarantee them whether I pray with them or not that Jesus answers every prayer. But you've got to open up your heart and see where the answer is. Marion, what a wonderful way to finish off our, our chat this morning. It's so good to be able to join us and to, and to share with us. It was a pleasure, John. It was a pleasure to join you any time. And the book is My Miracle Cure by Marion Carroll in all good bookshops. I know there's certainly some in Lermick, in the maybe Knox Ryan Brewer um, shop in Lermick, and also the St. Augustine's Church there in Henry Street, in O'Connell Street. In I think you get an Easton's and any good bookshop. Any good bookshop. Maria, thank you so much indeed for, for sharing thank your you, story John, with us today. Me, and may the Lord bless each person that is listening to this. And yes. may he send his love that will touch their hearts and receive his presence. Beautiful way to finish. What a lovely prayer to finish up with. And we, we traditionally always ask, suggest a song. What would you like us to play for yourself this morning, Marion? Um, well, I, I said, John, I have two favourites. I have Elvis Presley in The Miracle of the Rosary and in He Touched Me. And uh, I always felt, I always loved Elvis, and I always felt that even though he was a Baptist, that no matter when he sang a hymn, he prayed it. He wasn't just singing for the cell records, but he prayed it. And I know that every time before he'd done a concert or anything, he actually took his Bible and said a prayer. Okay, well, look, let's do it this way. Let's play He Touched Me Now at this moment, and then after our gospel segment later on to finish off the program, we'll also play by Elvis Presley, The Miracle of the Rosary. But in the meantime... God bless you. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing your faith with us. And that's most important because this is a faith program and this is a program where an awful lot of people tune in each week to try to, to get themselves encouraged and to sustain their faith in all the trials that they have. You certainly helped with that this morning. God I'd bless like you. 
I'll keep the intentions of all your listeners in my prayers. Do that, Marion. Please, God, we'll speak again sometime. We might even meet up. In the meantime, let's go and listen to Elvis Presley, and he's singing, He Touched Me. Touch me. 